This is Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. We bring you the latest and best strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines by investing in healthy and engaged workforces that deliver real ROI. Welcome to today's program. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Jim Purcell, the co-founder of the Returns on Wellbeing Institute. In 2020, low mental and emotional well-being has come center stage as the top employee health challenge and opportunity. Stress and depression have never been higher, and they have become barriers to longer-term behavior changes needed to live healthier lifestyles. This is particularly true for millennial and Gen Z generations that have become the largest segments of our workplace today. Employers approach mental health in the workplace with some trepidation. Stigma remains, as do issues of privacy, confidentiality, and access. With us today to talk about this is Darcy Gradadaro, the director of the Center for Workplace Mental Health, which was founded by the American Psychiatric Association Foundation. We know that mental health and emotional health in the workplace has become a really important issue. Of course, you and I know it always has been, but at least it's getting recognition today. But could you sum up for our listeners the state of American employees' mental health today as you see it? Sure, happy to do that. We know, based on research from the National Institute of Mental Health, that about 47 million Americans, or one in five, live with mental health conditions, and that's U.S. working-age adults. But we also know that only about half receive treatment, so that is very concerning. Mental health conditions impact youth and young adults and impact adults. We see high rates of mental health conditions in young people ages 18 to 25. Mm -hmm. They are the highest age group with these conditions at about 25%. When you then look at 26 to 29 to 49-year-olds, rather, we see about 22% impacted, and then 50 and above, it's only about 14%. So the one thing I would like to say, too, is that depression and anxiety, which are the conditions many employers report they see in the workplace, when it comes to those two conditions, the incidence of young people experiencing those conditions, again, in the 18 to 25 age group, is the highest of any age group. So we know that these conditions impact the youngest workers in the U.S. workforce. We also know that adolescents ages 17, actually 15, 16, 17, we are seeing higher and higher rates of anxiety and depression in those age groups. And that is quite concerning because what we're seeing is those that are about to enter the workforce are experiencing these conditions in much higher numbers. So it really is a cautionary note to employers to be prepared in the workplace for this young demographic and what their needs might be. You made two points I'd like to follow up on. The first is bringing the conditions with them into the workplace. I I just gave a a webinar to the California Bar Association on lawyer mental health, and they said the same thing about law students bringing with them high incidence of mental and emotional issues into the law firms that they practice in. Um, So you're seeing this just generally overall, is that right? That's correct. That is what the research is showing. So it really is across industries. It impacts 
that younger demographic, 18 to 25, at the highest rates, and it's considerably higher. So, mm -hmm. yeah. again, we don't necessarily know through well-conducted research yet, but there's certainly a much bigger focus on why that's true. And the stress levels seem to be higher, and there is this concern that it it is really something that we need to be thinking more about in the workplace, in the community, and overall in the healthcare system. Uh, approximately half of those that do experience significant mental illness get treatment. Actually, I, I thought that was a rather high percentage. I somehow had thought it was lower than that. Is that cause for concern, or is it cause for are we getting better at this? What have you observed? It is cause for concern, and that is... We know certainly that stigma, which you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. plays a major role. It's a barrier to people getting care. People are concerned. They could be judged. They could be not. They could lose uh, opportunities for advancement in the workplace if they come forward and get help. They really may also face tremendous challenges in getting access to care because there are shortages of of mental health professionals and providers that, that are available to people in communities. So there are all kinds of reasons why that's true, mm -hmm. but we certainly know stigma remains a significant barrier to people getting help. The American Psychiatric Association, your sponsoring organization, uh, apparently saw a pressing need for the center. And this is just my opinion, but uh, I, I find it a little unusual for providers to focus on workplace health issues. Usually they're focused on their own delivery issues. And I find it encouraging. Um, could you tell us what led the APA to focus on workplace mental sure. health? Well, certainly the workplace is a community, and it's the place where most adult Americans spend most of their waking hours. So the workplace is certainly a critical place to begin to be thinking about mental health conditions. Also, it is a likely place where mental health conditions may be seen mm -hmm. because people spend a lot of time at work and the workplace can have a significant impact on people's mental health. Right. So it was a combination of seeing this location as an important community and 130 million U.S. American adults work. So that mm -hmm. is a huge percentage of our population. So it is a great place to really begin to address these key issues around not just raising awareness and eradicating stigma, but also building cultures that help people stay healthier or maintain recovery if they live with a mental health condition, but also an opportunity to really improve access to care because employers are influential purchasers of healthcare services and supports. Yep. So we were really an early adopter and we were able to partner with a number of organizations that were doing cutting edge work and progressive work at the time on workplace mental health. So we formed those early relationships, and we're excited to see now the momentum really growing. In today's workplace, what do you feel are the top mental health challenges, and why are they important? I would say the number one issue is really ensuring that people need help, get the help they need, so they can bring their best selves to work, so they're high performers, so they are retained within the workplace, so that they're productive, and so they can really enjoy the experience of working. And we certainly know we're living in a time of very low unemployment, so employers are very interested in retaining their best workers. But also we ask employers frequently, what is the thing that concerns you the most? And we repeatedly hear it's ensuring that people have access to care. 
So the reason that's a challenge is our nation has major workforce shortages in mental health providers, Mm -hmm. whether it's therapists, counselors, psychiatrists. We have major workforce shortages, and employers are trying to figure out how to generate workarounds. We also know that people have issues accessing affordable care. Sure. So not enough providers are work in network and health plans, and people are often asked to pay out of pocket, and that's not feasible for many people because it's very expensive. There are also long wait times. So with provider shortages, it's not at all unusual for people to be told, we have a wait list, we're not taking new patients, our wait list is three to six months. It's very discouraging for employees, and that may again go to that 50% that don't have are not receiving treatment. It may really go to why that number is so high. And then the other thing is we also know that 70% of psychotropic medication scripts are written in primary care, and there's a real concern around whether people are getting effective care. And in many cases, we know they may not be. And in that case, what is it that employers can do to really help influence Mm -hmm. those issues? In the mental health arena, the copay issue becomes magnified, doesn't it? Because it's not like, you know, one or two office visits a year for your primary care doc. Uh, usually, if you have to get counseling and, and you have a significant issue, you've got to go once every week, once every two weeks, twice a week. So the number of copays that you pay really are magnified compared to what it would be for physical health, isn't it? That is absolutely true. That is an important observation. And what we're seeing is there are more employers that are suspending copays uh, yes. for employees when it comes to behavioral health care because they recognize that very issue. From your perspective, what information do you have about uh, what mental health challenges are costing employers in, uh, today? The figures are staggering. We actually have research that shows, for example, depression, as I mentioned earlier, is a common condition seen in the workplace. Right costs the U.S. economy about $210 billion a year. About half of that represents direct health care costs, so that's mm-hmm. pharmacy and office services and other medical services. And then about half is workplace-related in the form of presenteeism, people being at work but not engaged and not performing at their best, and then absenteeism, people missing work because of depression and other mental health issues. And the real concern is that presenteeism is on the rise. So that's difficult for employers because that's something that is – they can't necessarily see it as easily. They Mm -hmm. don't necessarily know that people are underperforming, and yet it is a major cost in the workplace. The other thing I will say, because I'm sure many of your listeners are global employers and work in the global space, depression and anxiety have a significant – economic impact on the global scene at to the tune of about $1 trillion per year in lost productivity. Mm-hmm. So the, the other important point is that what we know from research, too, that the World Health Organization has shared, for every U.S. $1 put into scaled-up treatment for common mental health disorders like depression and anxiety, there's a return of $4 in improved health and productivity. So this is a tremendous incentive for employers to ensure they are providing the health and uh, wellness benefits that their employees need. And then the final thing I'll say is we also know from research that when employees have chronic health conditions like cancer, diabetes, and heart disease, and you layer on a mental health condition, which is not inconceivable, if someone has a chronic health condition, the likelihood they'll have depression or anxiety is high. 
Right. The cost of treating that underlying chronic health condition is two to three times higher. So that is a tremendous incentive for employers to ensure they get the treatment for mental health care that people need when they live with these other chronic conditions because the full package of health care costs associated with chronic conditions and mental health issues is very high. The loss of productivity, if you will, employers see as a result of uh, stress, anxiety, depression, and substance abuse outweigh the loss of productivity from all other chronic illnesses combined, all of those, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, da-da-da-da-da-da. Stunning. It, 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 it really yes. is. So it, it should have people's attention. And from what you observe, employers are paying more attention to this, aren't they? They really are. And we know this not just from what we're seeing at the Center for Workplace Mental Health and incoming requests for assistance, which is a, a tremendous, and, and this is really a moment in time that we appreciate. We also know it from national surveys that have been done by the National Business Group on Health, Willis Towers Watson, Aetna, and other large national corporations and organizations that work directly with employers. So mm -hmm. all of those surveys show workplace mental health is in the top five priorities, if not at the top, for the overwhelming majority of employers in this country. Let's talk about access a little bit more. Um, we, we, there are uh, several issues about access, one of which is cost, and the other of which, a second of which is finding an adequate network of, of mental health providers, and then the third is simply timing, where people work nine to five, eight to six, uh, and uh, weekends, there are very few offices open. What, what, what can you share with us with regard to access, uh, and what advice might you give to employers sure. on what to do about that? Yes, that we do have a project with the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchaser Coalitions and the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute called the Path Forward, mm -hmm. and it is solely dedicated to improving, helping employers understand how to improve access to mental health and substance use care. And it's actually working with business coalitions around the country that are members of Mike's organization. So we're really focused in five key areas. One is, as you said, network adequacy. So do health plans have enough psychiatrists and therapists in their network to meet the needs of the employees? And employers can be very influential in that process of ensuring that to be the case by really looking closely at their data. Are people who need appointments getting them? What does the network look like? In working with a health plan to say, we want you to be more proactive in recruiting psychiatrists. We're looking at your reimbursement rates. We're looking at your administrative burden, your credentialing process. What does your health plan look like when it comes to recruiting new providers so people don't have to wait? So that's one. Mm -hmm. Two is the expansion of the collaborative care model. So the collaborative care model is a discrete model developed by the AIM Center at the University of Washington that involves delivering mental health care in a primary care setting. This is important because we know many people are comfortable with their primary care provider. They often have a long-term relationship with them. It's a low stigma setting. You can get two bites at the apple by going to see your primary care provider, getting your blood pressure taken, getting everything you need done to, to really look at your overall health and well-being. But the collaborative care model embeds a psychiatric consult into the practice. And the important part of it is that they use measurement-based care 
mm-hmm. to really track the progress on how someone's doing. So it brings the kind of psychiatrist consult into the primary care practice. Primary care providers appreciate it. Sc- validated ratings, screening tools are used to not only diagnose initially and assess an individual's mental health, but then to really track their progress. So if they're not doing well with therapy or med- and or medication, there's adjustments. There's a psychiatrist looking at the record and adjusting the treatment protocol to ensure changes are made. The collaborative care model has 80 randomized controlled trials showing effectiveness. So this is, this is a model that should be available in every single community. And we want employers to know CPT codes, payment codes, have been turned on by CMS very recently for these, this model of care. Mm-hmm. We want employers to really be looking at the data their health plan provides to ensure these codes are being used because they should be used somewhere around 20% of the time if that is, in fact, you know, the prevalence rates in, in most settings for mental health conditions. Right. And then, again, this idea of using measurement-based care, it is ensuring validated ratings screening tools and treatment tools are being used so we can build accountability in so that we know people are getting better. And if they're not, adjustments are made. And this is very important to employers because if people aren't showing up at work, if, they're not show, if they are showing up and not doing a good job, employers can really influence that by ensuring that their employees have access to care. So there are a couple other variables. One is parity, mental health parity. We know compliance remains an issue. So we want employers to get more proactive on that. Mm -hmm. And the fifth thing is ensuring telebehavioral health care is available. Now, there are plenty of areas in this country where telebehavioral health is essential because there are no providers available for people, so they need to use technology to access care. But there remain barriers that prevent it from being available as widely as it should. Certainly the evidence out there indicates that employee assistance plans, programs, EAPs, are drastically underused. Uh, would you advise employers that they really should, particularly for mental health, put their EAP on steroids and make something that really can make access work? Yes, great question. The key is ensuring that employees are aware the EAP is there, understand it's private and confidential. Mm-hmm. You are correct that the EAP is not being used nearly as often as it should be. So there, one, one thing for sure is to ensure that you're not just sharing EAP information when, as part of the onboarding process, but that employees are consistently and regularly reminded that the EAP is there and reminded all the services they provide. Mm-hmm. They can help with stress management. They can help with resiliency. So using creative ways to get people to connect with the EAP You don't necessarily need to say, if you're feeling depressed, call the EAP. You can couch it in the EAP is there for stress management. They have resiliency tips. They can provide you with coaching. I think that is a backdoor way in, since mental health still is a taboo topic for many. Mm -hmm. It's a backdoor way into getting people to connect with EAP. And then maybe if depression is a factor, because let's face it, if you have major financial pressures at home, If you have legal issues that have come up around a domestic situation or some other issue, you are likely going to be experiencing some form of depression anxiety. So that's a great way in to get people connected with counseling. What advice would you give to employers 
uh, about addressing stigma in their workplaces, and do you have any examples of organizations that have done it very well? Yes. So stigma remains an issue. It is slowly changing because we are seeing mental health on Main Street now with celebrities, professional athletes. More and more corporate leaders are talking about mental health. They're very much out in the open. We saw it, for example, at Davos with the World Economic Forum and corporate leaders there talking about how they care about mental health. So the way we eradicate stigma is making it much more visible. And that can be done on the global level, but it also can be done within an organization. If a CEO mentions mental health, sharing personal stories and sharing a personal connection to mental health makes a tremendous difference. And more and more organizations are doing that. So corporate leaders are sharing their connection to mental health and substance use. Uh, Supervisors and partners within firms, finance firms, law firms are talking about their connection to it. Making information visible in newsletters, on bulletin boards, having trainings at work, talking about how we all have mental health. This is not something that is always tied to a condition. We all have mental health. We need to take care of our mental health. Our mental health, just like our physical health, can experience changes. That's not unusual. That happens all along the socioeconomic ladder. It can happen to anyone. Mm -hmm. So just normalizing it in that sense of talking about it more openly, making it visible, and especially sharing that personal connection those are ways we eradicate stigma. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned something that actually brought to mind a, a story that I have. Um, when I was CEO of Blue Cross, uh, my my little brother Tim committed suicide, and I shared that with the employees. And you could not believe the number of employees that came up to me and not just you know gave me a hug or shook my hand, but shared stories that they hadn't shared with anybody else before. And, and suddenly they felt, oh, I can share it with Jim because he's gone through this. And he thought enough to share it. Um, you know, I, I, I even had one of the, the ladies that, 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 that cleaned the offices came up to me when I was there late one night and said, you know, I never told anybody else, but I'm telling you. What you just described is you opened the door to a conversation. And that is exactly the key to success. When people open the door to a conversation, that conversation will start. And if you keep that door open, so rather than it being a one-time event, if, if corporate leaders like yourself open that door more than once, that conversation will continue in the halls of any building in this sure. country. Now, some examples of organizations. I, I know you know Charles Laterulo at the American Express. He's got a pretty good, pretty good program about stigma, doesn't he? Dr. Latarulo is is one of my heroes. He does <laughs> incredible work at American Express. He has a very strong commitment. He's the director of the Healthy Minds program there. Yep. He has brought in speakers and had full auditoriums of employees at American Express to talk about mental health, including Glenn Close, who's talked openly about her sister and her nephew living with right. serious mental illness. He has developed online training for all employees. He has done multiple events, very visible events to bring mental health into the open. He has developed with his colleagues at American Express on-site counseling, mental health counseling, and made that available so employees can receive counseling during the day while at work. 
he has built a provider and psych, uh, psychiatrist network for their employees in New York that it allows their employees to have ready access to a psychiatrist should they need it. He has worked with his health plan to really uh, to embellish and to really expand the mental health services and supports that are available to their employees. He has done a tremendous job when it comes to stigma, but not just stigma. He goes well beyond it to the culture that exists at American Express and in, and in improving access to care. I'd like to focus on your case studies for a moment, uh, how you selected employers and uh, how you approached that, and, and from a strategic perspective, what these case studies demonstrate to you. So we are very fortunate that our URL is workplacementalhealth.org, and the reason we're fortunate is that there are a lot of people searching now. We keep close track of our data on this. Mm -hmm searching for workplace mental health, and our case studies have been really helpful because that's an opportunity for peer-to-peer -peer exchange. There's really no reason to reinvent the wheel when you can look at what others have done. And again, it's often important to create your own unique approach because you know your own business line, you know your workplace and the culture there, what will work. But we have all different size organizations, all different industries represented. What we do in terms of choosing is we are on the road often out meeting with businesses, out at national conferences, and we listen to what is being done as far as innovation. And often people send ideas to us about organizations we should really focus on. Yeah. So the other thing we do is we look at where are their areas of concern. And we did this most recently in looking at the suicide rates. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, puts out specific data on suicides by industry. And we noticed that the construction and manufacturing industry have very high incidence of suicide. Mm -hmm. We also know that suicide is up 40% over rates uh, during the last two decades of time. Really? So really? our oh. numbers are up very high, very concerning. But con the construction industry is one that has seen a big jump and an unfortunate jump. It is male-dominated industry. We most recently featured Lakeside Industries, and I, I just am so impressed with Cal Buyer, who runs their safety program there and has done so much on psychological safety at Lakeside, a manufacturing construction company. They have really zeroed in on the areas that I think are key in successful workplace mental health initiatives, and that is securing leadership support. So again, the more that employees can hear from the top that workplace mental health matters, the better, because that really sets the culture of the organization. So Cal's done a tremendous job of securing that. He developed a safety orientation video. Of course, safety is very important in construction. And in that, he included and addressed mental health and suicide prevention at work, which was a great thing to build into a safety video. He also has posters from the Construction Industry Alliance that are visible and available within their offices that people see before they go out on the job. He provides new hires with wallet cards in the orientation process that include information about crisis text line and the suicide prevention hotline and, and the EAP, again, reinforcing all the time mm -hmm. the EAP is there. And also then communication. Communication is key. So this, Cal's done a tremendous job on this. 
in making sure that mental health is part of their newsletters, the training they do on any number of other issues they build suicide prevention and mental health in. Again, he has pocket packets, the little cards he gives out all the time to people. So he really has seen, the outcomes he's seen have been quite impressive in higher EAP use, in employees volunteering in the community for mental health services. He has more and more people sharing their lived experience and offering to serve as a peer-to-peer resource to others. He's actually had employees testify in support of suicide prevention legislation at the state level. So it's just been a, a really shining example of those key elements, which is leadership support, regular communication, bringing information to employees, and making mental health visible within the organization. Uh, do you believe true parity exists and uh, if not, shouldn't employers demand that parity be enforced for their employees? Yes, I think employers should insist on it. No, I don't think we're there yet. Mm-hmm. I want to make a quick plug for an infographic we developed that's on our website on parity because it is a complex topic. Sure. And here's why. If you're a self-insured employer, you are potentially at risk of liability for parity noncompliance. So Large employers that are self-insured need to be aware of this. We know that we are not truly there when it comes to parity compliance because there have been two reports put out by Milliman, one in 2017 and one in 2019, showing clear evidence that we are not there when it comes to network adequacy for behavioral health providers in plans versus medical surgical providers, and we have inadequate or inequitable, I should say, reimbursement rates for Mm -hmm. behavioral health providers and medical surgical providers. So two reports, two years apart, showing we are actually moving in the wrong direction. The other thing we have is we have multiple state regulatory actions. So state insurance commissioners are becoming much more active on, on policing and checking on, policing is the word, compliance health plan compliance with mental health parity. Both federal and most states have parity laws too. So we are seeing more and more of this, and it is essential that employers be aware these actions are happening and they're potentially at risk of liability. And then finally, we've had multiple lawsuits around the country, all of which have have gone, um, or the majority of which have gone against health plans Mm -hmm. in showing parity noncompliance. So there have been class actions, there have been state regulatory actions, state litigation. So we have a long way to go. And in our infographic on the second page, we have what can employers do? The Department of Labor, the U.S. Department of Labor, that has compliance responsibility for parity, has put out a tremendous amount of resources for employers. And we have a link to that on our our infographic so that employers can go through checklists and they have very, very helpful compliance tools. So I would say take a look at those. When you really hold your health plan accountable to parity, it sends a message to your employees that you have a commitment Mm -hmm. to mental health care and you will not tolerate discriminatory insurance practices. And that really speaks volumes about in creating that culture, that caring culture when it comes to mental health and well-being for employees. What advice would you give employers today who are nervous about getting involved with their employees' mental health? We've talked with many employers and asked them, 
Was there any trepidation? Was there any concern? Did your compliance people express concern? And did that prevent you from moving forward? And the universal answer is no, that we went ahead anyway. And what we have found from our workplace mental health work has been Mm -hmm. nothing but positive. We have a culture in which people feel more comfortable around talking about any number of issues since mental health touches many aspects of life. We are all aware of how the role stress plays. We are all aware of resiliency. It is really, it has been a positive experience for the overwhelming majority of employers we've worked with. Yeah, of course, we can't force employees to talk about things they want to hold confidential, but we can create environments where they feel free to get the care they need and to the extent that they need to talk to someone, uh, facilitate that for them. Um, That is such such an important point, the privacy and confidentiality. We all handle our health and well-being in different ways, and we mm -hmm. all want to handle it differently. Some people are very comfortable being open about it. Others would rather not talk with a supervisor or anyone else about it. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it's someone's mental health and behavioral health issues are interfering with their performance. It is far better for someone to be able to come forward and and say, I'm having an issue with this, Mm -hmm. than have them be fired and be forced to leave the workplace when there are options for them to get connected with the care they need and perhaps to take a little time off so they can return 100%, much as they would do with any other physical health issue. Darcy, thank you for all your great insights. I really enjoyed this, and I hope our listeners will take them to heart. This has been great, Jim. I so appreciate you inviting me on, and I look forward to continuing to collaborate with you. And for further information to our listeners about workplace and employee well-being, including mental and emotional well being, please visit our website at returnsonwellbeing.com and our Returns on Wellbeing Institute YouTube channel. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. To learn more about our resources and programs that help employers make employee well-being a bottom line business strategy, please visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com.